Welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. Listen to incredible conversations with former high-profile AFL, A-League and NBL players who discuss their lives and respective professional sporting careers. Previous guests welcomed on the podcast include... Dustin Fletcher, Al Bruce, Travis Dawkins, Brett Maher, Eugene Brickens, Kevin Brooks, Jack Fitzpatrick, Bill McDonald, Sam Jacobs, Calvert, Marcus Ferry, Sean Reddish, James McIntyre, Andrew Vlahov, Graham Corn, Brian Curl, Jason Ekamanis, Chris McDermott, Mike Ellis, Kevin Lich, Matt Smith, Michael Brooks, Brendan T, Jordan McMahon, Brett Burt, Matt Shanahan, Rupert Stathwell, Dusty Rokart, Sam Gibson, Ricky O'Loughlin, Dylan Addison, Daniel Georgeski, Dom Tyson, Sergio Fendag, Adam Snyder, Ricky Grick. Rick Latson. Links to all previous episodes are down below for your listening pleasure. But without further ado, let's get into this next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter. They've got a brand new stadium, a big one, and they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment because the Eagle has landed. They're the premiers in 2018. There it is. Brisbane have won it. The Orange Order is restored. It took just one season of transition, but Brisbane Raw premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia. The 17-year drought is over. All hail the Kings. Sydney, the NBL 22 champions. 3-0 sweep. They win it. 97 to 88. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, Episode 40. I hope everyone's doing well. All is very good, very grateful from this end. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by former Hawthorne Premiership player, Rick Ladson. Throughout this conversation, Lado and I discuss growing up in Bendigo and finding his love for football at a young age, being picked up by the Hawthorne Football Club at pick number 16 in the 2001 Super Draft, this time coinciding with his mother's battle with breast cancer and how difficult that was for him to navigate through. Those tough early years on the field for the Hawks where there wasn't much success on the field playing under Peter Schwab. We discuss Alistair Clarkson's appointment as coach ahead of the 2005 season and the quick rise that became. And and Alistair Clarkson, of course, becoming now one of the greatest coaches, possibly the greatest coach of all time gone from five wins in 2005 to the Premiership just three years later in 2008. We talk about that famous 2008 Grand Final, one of the biggest, probably the biggest Grand Final upset of all time. We talk about that famous goal he kicked, and I'll quote Bruce McAvaney to completely seal it, the goal that confirmed the victory for Hawthorne late in the last quarter. We discuss the Premiership hangover the year after in 2009 and early 2010, and of course, the passing of his father, Barry, and the impact this made on the final years of his career, which eventually came to an end in 2011. So throughout his career from 2002 to 2011, Lado played 125 games, scored 45 goals. He played in six finals, including one grand final. And of course, as I mentioned, he is an AFL premiership player in 2008. So that's enough from me. I know you didn't click on this episode to listen to me. You came to listen to Lado. From the Hawthorne Football Club, Rick Ladson. 
Here is Lanson speculating with the left beast, and the Hawks know they've got it now. With the clearance, and that's a spectacular mark by Lanson. Goes long inside the four with 50, sprinting to it. Lanson takes the mark. Lanson right on the 50. Bacon square. He can almost bounce it through. He spots that. He'll do that. He'll kick a goal. Smart. Oh. Bounced on by Ladston. Left footer. Great kick. Great snap. Great goal. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. And today we've got Premiership player from Hawthorne, Rick Ladson. Thank you so much for coming on the show here tonight. No worries at all, mate. Thanks for having me. Lado, it's been 11, 12 years now since your final game in the AFL. I understand you've gone into the coaching space. You spent some time at Essendon. Can you give the listeners a bit of an update on, on where you're at in life now, sort of 10 plus years post-football? Yeah, no worries. Fair bit's happened. It's gone pretty quick, but in my first year out of playing and, and obviously after 10 years at Hawthorne, I went to the arch rival for a year. The connection there was at the time, Bendigo, was still in the VFL, aligned with Essendon. So that was part of the reason why I went there, but I was doing a development coaching role in 2012. So yeah, I learned a lot in that space. But then at the end of that year, I decided to move back to Bendigo, where I took on a um, playing coach role at Golden Square in 2013. And yeah, so that's where it all started, I guess, coming back home. And fast forward to now, I'm coaching out at Bridgewater, which are in the uh, Loddon Valley Football League. So coaching out there, this is the second year I've been out there, which is good, and also coaching the mighty under 10 at St. Teresa's Primary School, where one of my young blokes goes. Obviously, coaching something you've got an interest in. Is going to the AFL in a coaching space something you would ever have any interest in possibly doing? Yeah, look, it's like footy's just been a passion of mine since I was a little tacker. I think um, most guys that end up playing AFL have have had that, that itch for as soon as they could speak and kick a footy around. What I find is I just love developing others and can't beat that feeling of winning and being part of a team. So the passion to coach and, and help others is, I think, always going to be there. And in terms of what level, you know, I'd love to be in that AFL system at some point, but it's also got to be the right time around family and, and things like that too to, to make a move into that space. But at the moment, probably not something that's at the forefront of my mind, but also if an opportunity came up, you'd, you'd definitely be um, mad not to look at it obviously a big industry and an exciting industry to get into so yeah it's definitely something I would think about but currently just enjoying the country air mate yeah fair enough going back to your early years as you mentioned you're a Bendigo boy can you give us some info on perhaps your early life in terms of your family childhood and and especially where you found AFL and and when and how you started playing yeah no worries at all um I was actually born in uh Wangaratta and then moved to Bendigo when I was one so grew up a little kid and everything in Bendigo. Dad worked on the railways for quite some time, which is why we moved from Wangaratta to Bendigo. Ended up being based there, and yeah, I sort of, I guess, fell in love with footy. You always hear the stories of you know, as soon as you could walk and grab a footy or whatever, you know, the kids usually do it. That was me, and yeah, well, Richmond. Growing up, Dad was Mad Tiger, so I was a Richmond fan. And the moment I could do Oz kick, it was back then, I think. Um, big kick, sorry, it was now Oz kick, but yeah, back then, so that's a long time ago. I remember, yeah, signing up and, and going to Big Kick, which I just absolutely frothed being there that once, one session a week. Yeah, and then as I got older, got to play in the junior system and, and, and whatnot. You know, nowadays, 
they start them in under nines. You know, back then it was under twelves. So I think I ended up playing under twelves for four years. Wouldn't be doing that these days, but yeah, and just I guess the love for footy just got stronger and stronger. You know, you as most kids, you have an idol from the team you barrack for, and, and mine was Matthew Knight, left footer, blonde hair, just like yourself, a bit similar to me. So if he kicked a goal on the weekend, be practicing that all week commentating to myself or whatnot so um, or if you got a haircut I'd try and get the same haircut but yeah the, the footy sort of side of things as I got older moved through the system you know with the Bendigo Pioneers the schoolboys, I think it was under 15s and then yeah was able to play a couple of years in the under 18 system before getting drafted um, at the end of 2001 yeah which was really exciting but my time through that Pioneers journey was yeah it was an amazing one we had a pretty stern and serious coach in Rod McPherson like he was old school I responded pretty well to that so he put a lot of time and effort into us and I learned a lot and that helped me sort of get into the system of the AIS and and things like that through that time and big country and a lot of eyes on you to get drafted and fortunately enough I was lucky to to end up at, at the Mighty Hawks. So as you're coming through the ranks was being a professional footballer something that you actually always wanted to do or did it just happen nah like I just never shut up about it (laughs) Um, yeah my school teachers hated me mate look my family we we didn't have a lot growing up mum and dad struggled a fair bit financially and you know they're all things that as a kid you just you know you think it's life so you know at the time nothing worried me I just went about my thing and I knew I couldn't have all the all the things that all the brand new nice things that some kids were getting or whatever but I was just happy with my footy mate like as long as my footy didn't have the bladder hanging out the end I was I was a happy boy and you know I was really grateful I guess for the the grounding that I had from my parents in a sense and yeah I just literally like I obviously went to school and there's some subjects I enjoyed but like all I talked about was I just wanted to be drafted I wanted to play AFL so I was very passionate about it yeah from a very young age and yeah just forever grateful that I I actually got to, I guess, live that out, mate, because a lot of a lot of people have that passion and and wanted to, to get in the AFL but don't get there, unfortunately. So when was it that you realised you were actually good enough to make it onto an AFL list? Was there a moment where you thought this could actually happen or did you always have that confidence that you could make the AFL? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's like I, I knew that I had the talent to do it, but I never thought it could happen in a sense. So it was a, it was a very contradicting sort of space you know even leading into the 2001 draft I was 17 so I had another year in the TAC Cup back then and I I think I met with every club except for Essendon and I still just didn't think I'd get picked up I can't explain it I just you know I was looking at options what I was going to do in 2002 from a work perspective because yeah that's just sort of how I pictured that but even being selected in big countries and, and things like that and the AIS like that's Back then, if you're in that AIS, it was pretty rare that if you were in that squad, that you know you didn't get picked up. But I still just didn't voice it, if that makes sense. Like I wasn't arrogant about it. I, I knew that I was a talented kid and I, I was playing good footy, but my focus was just more on that, like just enjoying the moment of playing, playing well. And yeah, until your name's called out, and that year it was on the wireless, so it was a bit different. But yeah, that's probably how that sits. Yeah. 2001 AFL draft, which is now famous for being the super draft, especially for the Hawks. So back then, they picked up Sam Mitchell, Luke Hodge, Campbell Brown, yourself. You were taken at pick 16. Did you know, at like leading up to the draft, that Hawthorne was the likely destination? I honestly, like 
and still to this day, like, honest as the day is long, I just didn't think I was going to get picked up. I thought being 17, I'd have to have another year. And again, like, yeah, at the time, I think, yeah, the only club I didn't sit with was Essendon. And then after the fact, I remember Adrian Dodoro saying, well, we just didn't bother because we knew that you weren't going to get through to our pick at the time that they wanted to try and look at it. But, yeah, to get picked up that early, like, I remember the phone ringing and it was my manager, Todd Viney, at the time. Yeah, I was just shocked. So, like, I was stoked because it turned out that Port Adelaide were really keen at pick 15, but they ended up taking Barry Brooks, I think it was. That allowed me to get through to the Hawks at 16. So, yeah, I was pretty stoked with that. And also only having moved to Melbourne versus interstate at the time. My mum was had been really unwell with breast cancer, so I was a little bit oh, just worried about having to maybe move too far away and, and not sort of be there to support mum and, and my siblings and dad through through what was pretty tough at that time. So, yeah, to hear, I guess, Hawthorne had picked me was... Yeah, it made me pretty happy and we're pretty ecstatic that it was just in Victoria. Yeah, so I wasn't aware of that. So that must have been a pretty difficult thing to deal with at your age during that time, especially when you had such a big moment in your life getting onto an AFL list, having to deal with your mother's illness must have been pretty challenging. I had its moments, I think, so many people that go through these things. And, you know, I remember sort of being away for big country games and, and stuff right in the, probably in the, in the height of where mum was really unwell and having a treatment and, and things like that. But looking back at it, it, it helped shape me a little bit. I remember being literally 10 seconds late from a meeting one night. I'd been on the phone to mum, I think, and I walked into this meeting and I was, would have even been less than 10 seconds, I reckon, late to the start of it. Leon Harris, who was our big country coach at the time, just, he absolutely let me have it. And look, it shaped me. Like, I, I realised at that point that, like, You've really just got to make sure that you're, you're resilient, you still stick to task and, you know, you don't let things get in the way of what your goal is. So ultimately, yeah, that was obviously to play well and and get drafted. So I, I felt like I learned a lesson that trip away. But look, it was challenging. But once we got down to Melbourne and, and mum recovered really well and, you know, she's still uh, kicking now and we're very fortunate. I mean, so many people have been close to mates and their family, friends and stuff that have had it and unfortunately didn't make it through so to still have mum around it's it's pretty amazing and she got to share a pretty amazing journey throughout my 10-year career at the Hawks. Yeah absolutely when you were drafted at pick 16 what was that moment like for you and your family do you remember the moment we were with your family at the time when you found out? Yeah we had the wireless going out the backyard mate there was a barbecue and stuff I think again like I was just going with the flow like a I talk about it now and I was like, geez, mate, you're just a dumbass. Like, <laughs> it was so obvious that I was probably going to get picked up to others, but not to me. But yeah, like, I had some really close family members, some cousins and stuff that were like big brothers to me at the time, you know, still mentors in life now. Yeah, we had a barbecue and they were having a few beers and whatnot. And I just remember getting a call to come inside and yeah, and then I got told and shared that news with mum and dad. And yeah, I just remember being just stoked and. You know, you're that happy, but you're sort of you're crying and everyone's pretty pumped at the same time. And it was delayed on the radio, so we obviously got told in on, on the phone inside and then waited for it to get announced on the radio out the back. And, yeah, it was a pretty cool time. And, yeah, it's a bit different when it's on telly, but, yeah, it was, it's quite a unique year, that one, and had it on the radio. Your first season on the, the list was 2002. Now, the year before, 2001, Hawthorne had made the preliminary final and were obviously one of the club's expected to take the next step 
your first season on the list, did you ever expect to come in and play straight away and be part of success? Or did you know at the time it was possibly going to be a long haul to get into the first team? Oh, look, I probably didn't have expectations of myself other than just getting fit, fitting in and becoming part of the team. So whatever that meant at the time, it's just mainly sparkling up every session and I haven't touched a weight. I would have been like 63 kilos ringing wet. I think I had a um, pretty long mop of noodle type hair at the time and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, had a shower or whatever. It's probably I was at my heaviest. So <laughs> I, I walked in the yard like, I'm going to get eaten alive. You go into the weights room and they're, you know, they're massive. Daniel Chick and Trent Crow are just throwing weights around like you wouldn't believe. Tony Woods and Croft was training like a machine and you just go, holy shit. You had the Ruckman, big Sean Wren as well. Yeah, big Rennie. He was, he was good value with Shawnee. But yeah, and Nathan Thompson was great at the time at the start there. But I, I didn't think he was going to walk in and play. I just knew I had to work hard throughout that first year. Living with Hodgie, myself and Hodgie and Daniel Alstone, who got who got picked up at pick 20. He was a Benny at Pioneers captain that year. And we started off living together with a family down there. And yeah, we just got to work. So I just remember playing some good footy early on and yeah, got the tap on the shoulder. I, we were coming up against Richmond, actually, at the MCG, and Chobby was a coach at the time and pulled me aside before training and said, mate, we're going to pick you this week. You're going to debut. And I just remember, like, just being just stoked. I didn't know how to talk at the time. Who would have thought coming up, debuting, playing against a side that I've grown up just loving? And Matthew Knights was still playing at the time. So, um, yeah, and 10 minutes later, did my knee at training. So I missed out debuting that year. And Hodgie actually played... He got the call up and, yeah, I always tell Hodgie I made him, but I don't think I really did. But we just yeah, had a bit of a joke about it at the time. So, yeah, look, even then, it's just like got work to do. So fortunately, I was able to get back. But injuries were just, a, unfortunately, a big part of my career. He ended up playing 125 games. Probably could have played a lot more without those injuries, obviously. What's the hardest part about injuries in sport? Is it the mental toll that it takes or the physical toll? Oh, it's a mixture. Yeah, it gets older in so many different ways. And then I think I found the tougher at the very start because I'd never missed a game of footy, like in my whole journey, through juniors, right through pioneers. I'd never been injured to a point where I had to miss a game. I'd never been sick where I missed a game. And then all of a sudden, before my debut, I've got a pretty serious knee injury. So, yeah, it looked physically it gets you a little bit, but... It's probably the longevity of the, the emotional and sort of mental side of it that can, can drag you down a bit. Because so, sometimes you're training just by yourself. You're doing sessions by yourself because everyone else is out on the track or you know someone else hasn't got that same knee injury or same program. But yeah, at the start it was very hard. But I think towards the end, obviously there was a, a change in, I guess, systems around programs and fitness staff and, and different ways to do those sort of things. So... Yeah, it's definitely a mixture, I reckon. Like, it, it, obviously, everyone would be different in that space, but it was just a mixture of what emotions we get, yeah, whether that be the physical side or mental side. So, obviously, after you've gone through such a long injury, before even making your debut, when you finally did play your first game, a win against Carlton at Princess Park, did you appreciate that debut a lot more? And what are your memories from your first game? Well, the big game underway here at Up French beaten by Campbell in from the side well done Clark 
big pack of players around the football and a bounce. Stolen from him, Thompson, kick forward from Brown, Cox knocks it on intelligently, now a chance for Barlow, he just overruns it. Oh, brilliantly done by Ladson, how did he do that? He kicks and misses. Gee, oh, there's a little kick up to himself. Well, he'll never have back Exciting problems. play from Rick Ladson, let's watch this again, he just chips it to himself. There you go, thank you very much. Mickey can't get clear, McMartin, it's a siren guys, there is no more. The Hawks after a big week, and they certainly popped the shellacking from the football public, have got up by 11 points. Yeah, I did appreciate it. I, I think any time I would have, especially if it had happened before I did that now, I just think I would have really grasped that time and obviously the opportunity that you have. But yeah, in a sense, it grounds you a bit. You do, you realise, hang on, like, I've got some work to do. They're not just handed to you. Things can change in a blink of an eye. To play that game, get called up against the, the Blues was Princess Park and Jade Rawlings' 100th game. And Jade was a fantastic mentor and a, and a mate. He's one of the older sort of guys and leaders around the place. He was just fantastic for me and I was, I was sort of really stoked to be a part of his big day and get a win together, which was good. But, you know, I remember vividly after the game, obviously you see your family and stuff, but the first media person that was allowed, that like came in, was allowed in and, and interviewed me was Adam Burke from the Bendigo Advertiser and he'd had a pretty special time throughout my journey. He was our runner back in my under-12s days in a, in a premiership in 93. So I just remember seeing Adam in the rooms and thinking that that was pretty cool too to share a day and a moment, I guess, with someone that had known me since I was a, a little grasshopper. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So at the time, Peter Schwab was the coach what was your relationship like with him and how did you see him as a coach throughout those early years? Well, I love Schwabby and I still do. He's, he's just a fantastic person and just admired. Like, I mean, you can't not respect the guy. And I, I just got to work. So, like, I didn't, I wasn't one to sort of look into things. If, you know, these days, like, it could be, oh, they talk to me this way or he doesn't give me this or he doesn't give me that. And I just had a good rapport with Schwabby. He was great for me in particular. But, yeah, he, he was good and I think... You probably don't, like you notice certain things at the time, but it's your team, you've got a process and a system that you need to play for and play to. So it changed so significantly from when Schwabby was let go and, and then Clarko came in, like our footy changed so quick. But yeah, I, I enjoyed Schwabby as a coach and unfortunately I didn't get to play enough under him. Yeah, no, he, he was a great mentor for a lot of us younger guys in that early stage of our careers. All right, everyone, it's time for a quick break on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccino's, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions and birthday parties, just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price, but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, Contact us directly via phone at 0418 
1894-570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out the way, let's get back to the show. At this time, it seems as though the club wasn't really going anywhere after the preliminary final in 2001. So they missed the finals in 02, 03, 04. And the squad of early 2000s had probably missed its chance to win a flag with that particular group. And the list was now about the new generation of Hodge and Mitchell, Brown, yourself, and then obviously Roughhead Lewis, Franklin come in the next year. Peter yeah. Schwab departed the club at the end of 2004. Donald McDonald took over for the last month or so. What are your recollections of that time when Schwab left the club? Yeah, look, it was just weird to be a part of. You just didn't expect something like that to ever happen. But, I mean, you fast forward to now and it, it happens a lot, doesn't it? Look, I remember it wasn't like all doom and gloom, mate, but it was just a, an eerie sort of a time at the footy club. But, you know, one thing about Schwab is he wore his heart on his sleeve. And, yeah, look, it was disappointing that he had to take off. But Donald McDonald... D-Mac, he'd coached a lot of the guys through the Box Hill space. Such a likeable guy. He's sort of one of the lads. He's just got that personality that just people warm to him. So when he took over, I was out injured at the time anyway, but he did galvanise the group quite quickly in, in, in terms of that old school, let's just get together as a group and have a few beers. Like I think there was a bus trip. We went down to Fairhaven or something, I think. Like, it goes against everything that, I think this was on a Tuesday before a game or something, to galvanise the group. And I think we got flogged on the weekend. But, look, it was a weird time. But, yeah, D-Mac got his opportunity to coach a few games. And, and look, when Clarko come on board, a lot of us, you know, were like, well, who's Clarko? <laughs> who's Alistair the Clark? And a little bit. And, yeah, once you sort of read up a little bit on him and he made his print pretty early on a lot of us from the first meeting, you knew he meant business and things were going to be different. And... You couldn't help but just toe the line and get him behind him and support him. And things changed drastically for us, which was, um, you know, through a lot of hard work and a lot of change. But, yeah, to go through, I guess, a, a period where the footy club, it's a, you know, respected and very successful footy club, go from a prelim to then not featuring for a bit. And there was a lot of pressure on the players and staff and, and the footy club in general. So to be part of, I guess, what was that little rebuild, and cop a few pizzlings on the scoreboard and, yeah, probably be the cause of a few coach killers at the time for Clarko, but to then come out the other side of it and build a bond with some players and rebuild a club together, in a sense, was just an amazing time. When Alistair Clarkson came in ahead of the 2005 season, as we know now, one of the greatest coaches of all time, certainly the greatest coach of the modern era, five grand finals, four premierships over 17 years at Hawthorne, now North Melbourne you, obviously you didn't know anything about him prior to, to him getting the job well just I knew that he'd played and like I knew those just general things about Clark Owen. and then yeah really quickly you learnt he was just different mate like he's so knowledgeable always well ahead of the game like well ahead of where you anyone that I thought was a footy head or a footy brain he was well ahead of them all the time he was always thinking strategically from a game perspective, but also just individually. Like his his ability to build rapport with each and every player to a level where you trusted him with everything, you could talk to him about anything. His genuine care for you as a human and your family and friends and stuff too was just paramount. 
at the time, he just didn't realise that no surprise to me that he's, if not the best coach to ever coach in the AFL, but why he's been so successful is because of his ability to build relationships and his strategy is just simply outstanding. So I don't know if this is an easy or a hard question to answer, but at the time, like when he first came in, could you ever foresee the success that was to come? Like, did you know that that you were heading in that direction or that there was the potential to have a dynasty sort of a team? Or do you just think, oh, we'll see what happens? Honestly, at the time, no. I just remember going, this guy means business. And if we all buy in, who knows what can happen sort of thing. Because like, you're a bit raw in that space. We, we didn't know what success was. We couldn't sort of see that. Yeah, we played in premierships and stuff individual you know back in the day but nothing like AFL so definitely not couldn't see that it was going to be as successful you know when I look back at it and no doubting the reason why and that was just his ability and his passion for the game but as I keep saying like the individual side of things his passion for his players his staff and look you know there's been things in the past where people it could be a bit overbearing but I was just very fortunate to be a part of that that, that era and unfortunately I was I was finished just before they went mad and got the three-peat but I was fortunate enough to be a part of that little rebuild and, and get that 08 premiership which is amazing. Is there anything that you've taken from Clarko that you implemented to your own coaching style now? Oh look there's little bits and pieces no matter where you coach you've got to adapt to your surroundings so obviously the levels around town aren't, aren't AFL levels so you've just got to adapt to the I guess the group that you've been coaching, but yeah, there's some some philosophies and even some training drills and and some of these I guess his little one-liners that he used to use that they often come out. But yeah, he's definitely had an impact and, and helped me understand I guess coaching a little bit more and from a strategy point of view. But the biggest thing I used that he taught me was just you've got to know your players because like, they need to trust you. You need to trust them and building rapport with your players and staff bring success so yeah early days in your career you struggled with injuries but by 2006 you were able to establish yourself as a regular in the side playing mostly at halfback and this coincides with Hawthorne's build to what became that dynasty team so when Clarkson first came in you had five wins in 2005 nine wins 2006 13 in 2007 where you made the finals you won a final and then 2008 was the premiership years. You, you're going through these years. Could you actually feel that a premiership was coming or did you think it was realistic now it, it, it was going to come? Oh, look, I think when, you, when you're in a side and you, your goal is to win a premiership, all the hard work you put in, you've always got that at the end of your sight. That's what you're working towards. Yeah, those first couple of years when we're topping a few pizzling, I don't think at any stage I think, geez, we're that far off a flag. It was just more about buying into our process and what, where we wanted to head as group. So we just wanted to keep improving. We knew we'd go through those games where we'd copper hiding and whatnot. And we'd just find positives and you got to. Then you'd work on those things that weren't going so well. But you know over time that if you can sustain a group to stay together and each individual is helping the other be better on and off the field, that anything can happen. And by the time we sort of got to that 06 and... 07, like we kept building, but you know, in 08, they said, Oh, you know, Hawthorne stole one, or whatever they may say, but we knew we were going to win that. Round 17, I think it was, we played Geelong, we lost to them at the MCG, we left that game, 
Clarko walked into a meeting on Monday, I think it might have been. He goes, we're going to win the Premiership and this is how we're going to do it. We'll beat them next time we get them. And we went and worked on a couple of things and yeah, like literally that was our belief. We knew from that, well, I left that meeting and there might be some other blokes that might have thought this bloke's bloody off his head but I was like, well, everything we've done and everything we've implemented to date has worked because we've believed in it and we execute it well so this is going to be no different. So yeah, like in that 08 space, yeah, definitely knew that we could win it and well, in a sense we weren't going to but yeah, I just had the belief we had the side to do it but yeah, looking back at it now, you know, we were pretty young still, we were pretty raw, had a bit of experience around the edges with Croft and Trent Crowe and, and big Stewie Jew but yeah, the rest of us were pretty raw around the edges so pretty amazing time. Wow, so that round 17 loss was probably the defining moment where you realised you could do it, like you knew where you went wrong and you, yep. if you just had one more chance at them, you could get them. 100%. From that meeting, like, literally, you know, I know majority would have walked out of there thinking the same that I was. Like, yeah, we'll get those bricks. And we had the utmost respect. Like, I bloody, I love playing Geelong. Most of their team are just absolute superstars of the game and so much respect for them. But it was like, yeah, in a sense, like, I look back, it's probably slightly innocently arrogant, but we were like, no, we'll get them. And, yeah plays out that we did but I have no doubt that's because of the way Clark Owen instilled a couple of things in us and our ability to execute it as a group. We're getting into that 08 Premiership season now. There's always a strategy when a club rebuilds towards a Premiership and typically speaking it takes about eight years to go from bottom to a, to a Premiership. Now you guys did it in four years. 2005 the journey started and by 2008 you've won a Premiership. You're obviously always on the right track but Say on the eve of round one, 2008, did you genuinely believe both as an individual and as a collective that it was going to come as soon as that year? Uh, I think we had genuine belief that we'd be, we'd be contending. Come off the year before where, you know, we win a elimination final, which you have no doubt that was the catalyst for our big pre-season and, and ended up where we ended up because that experience and but then the letdown the week after you know you just want more of that so that really drove our our pretty young group so you know going into it i think yeah we our expectations that we're going to be playing finals but we just had to do the work and continue to be better all the time each day every week both you know on and off the field so that's i think how we challenged that year and 2008 was the year of buddy franklin so he kicked 113 goals that year the last time anyone's done it, possibly the last time anyone will ever do it, kick 100 goals in a season. You played every game that year. What was it like to play with Buddy Franklin within that particular season? Because he, and you've got to remember, he was only 21 at that time. What was it like playing with Buddy every single week in that particular year? It was unreal, mate. Like, I was playing half back, so I had the best seats in the house every week. If you weren't kicking it to him, I was watching someone else hit him up or just watching him take him on and kick the goals from everywhere. So, yeah, us backmen, especially half back, is the way we sort of structured up. We sort of got those front row seats to just watching an absolute superstar do his thing. And not only him, but Mark Williams and Cyril was bloody good to watch from those, those angles too. But look, it was an amazing time for Franco. He was still obviously, yeah, very, very young, but he was he matured a lot in general. But yeah, just admired his, his ability on the footy field. But I, I admired his, his ability to harness it the pressure and, and things that he was under off field too to be able to just 
keep competing and keep executing so well each week. Yeah, to kick 100 goals, it was phenomenal to be a part of the team and be a teammate out on the ground when that happened too. Yeah, in round 22 when he kicked his 100th goal, where were you on the ground in the first quarter when he kicked it? Lewis jabs that nicely and the Hawks go into attack. Dishes off to Rioli. Rioli shorts it. Here's the moment. Franklin's got it. So Lance Franklin, there's the security guards. They are lining up by the dozens. I don't think it's going to be enough. Lance Franklin. All the players are moving towards the middle of the ground in anticipation. Here he comes. On 99 goals, Lance Franklin joins the 100 club. Yeah, so just setting up in our Clarko's cluster when he had his set shot. But then, yeah, I crept sort of in a bit closer. And then I remember getting close and nearly turning back away. But then I realised I was just in it. So I had to stick it out and get crushed with the rest of the crowd. We ended up getting ushered off the ground with Bud, which was just, yeah, unreal. There was myself and Ruffy and a couple of other boys that got ushered off with him. And we had to go down the back of Telstra Dome at the time. Yeah, we ended up walking all the way around and getting ushered back up eventually. So I think the game stopped for maybe 20 minutes or something like that. But That's like a whole um, quarter. That's a long time. It was a long time, mate, yeah, because people come from everywhere. It was an amazing experience. and Yeah, I, like at times there, you were struggling to breathe. So lucky I haven't been into mosh pits, so I didn't know what I was in for. But I think that's what they'd be up for at those concerts. But <laughs> um, again, you know, we'd come back out. and Yeah, I think also that game, Clarko let us know. Brennan Favola is not kicking 100 tonight. I was going to yeah. ask you about that. Obviously, at the time, you wanted to stop it, and you did stop it. He got stuck on 99. But do you yep. ever think now, 15 years later, it would have been cool for him to kick his 100th as well and have the two in the one game? <laughs> yeah, I, got, I actually saw something the other day. I think Feb did a podcast with someone, and they talked about it. And, oh, I think he's great, Feb. He was a fantastic player. I love that he's a bit of a lad, you know, a larrikin. And it's good to see him doing well, actually. But... um. There's part of me that would have liked to have seen it, but then there's this part of like, nah, I just wanted Bud to have it. So I'm kind of happy that he didn't. But then, yeah, just because I think he's a bit of a, a bit of a legend, I think it would have been nice. But yeah, I think he deserved his career. Probably deserved it. Yeah, yeah, he did deserve it. There's no doubt, mate. Like, too, I think he had zero goals at half time, and then he just started getting on a roll in that second half. And probably the harder we tried to stop him, the better he went. So we probably should have just left it. But yeah, thankfully, he didn't get a free kick there late and he, he missed out on the 100. But yeah, like, it sucks for him because he had to be stuck on 99. It's a horrible feeling, yeah. I would have thought. Just before we move on, Buddy Franklin, arguably the greatest player of this century, certainly one of the best players to ever play the game. 350 games, he's kicked over 1,000 goals in his career. This would probably be his last year. What was it like to share a locker room with him for all those years and see what he did at Hawthorne? phenomenal like pinch myself still not just with him but like the guys that I was able to play with that you call mates and teammates the list of those names is pretty awesome and you know it's similar to down at Geelong start listing a few of their guns at the time but to have that time with Bud, Ruffy, Jordan Lewis the boys around my time 
Sammy Mitchell, Luke Hodge. You know, one of my favourites and one of my best mates, but I just love the way he played the game. Chance Bateman and just shared days every day, training sessions, weight sessions, just trying to improve each other and, and, and be on a journey that we were to have those superstars. Yeah, you pinch yourself a bit. You mentioned that you knew you were good enough, but do you ever, especially through the final series, do you ever have a moment where you think, this actually can happen? Or is it just the old cliche, take it as it comes one week at a time? Yeah, you do that. I think you're just drilled to to look at things that way. Like, what will be will be one week at a time, that sort of stuff. But I just remember how ruthless we executed our game style against Bulldogs and then St Kilda. And you do, you have those anxieties around what could be, I guess. But yeah, I just remember a moment vividly at the end of the Saints game. Obviously, we're going into a grand final. I remember walking down the race and obviously you're pumped because you're going to a grand final, but had Croft next to me and I just remember him just putting his arm around me and just saying one more, mate. And then it was like we enjoyed the song, but then we just went into this mode of we've got a job to do. Yeah, which I just remember coming down that race and him saying that to me. I guess that got me focused for the rest of the, the time, but... Grand final day 2008, in my opinion, the biggest grand final upset of all time. You beat Geelong, who had only lost one game for the whole year. Leading up to the game, and you did mention it a little bit earlier, but coming into the game, did you truly believe in your heart that you could beat Geelong? Absolutely, yeah. We had a plan, I knew if we executed it. And yeah, the cliche, if we all did our bit and played that role, we'd win the game. Yeah, they were pretty tough to beat. No one really done it going two in a row pressure was probably on them a little bit more and yeah I just think yeah we just knew we executed what we needed to that we'd we'd get the job done bright sunny warm day over 100,000 people were there certainly the biggest crowd that you ever played in front of in your career can you describe for the listeners what it's like on grand final day when you come up the race and run onto the ground to the cheer of the crowd yeah it gives me chills thinking about it It, you know one of the, the greatest moments in my life before the game obviously after it was pretty bloody special too but when you, you're you coming up the race and you can hear everyone talking so there's just this hum that goes around the place and there's this energy that you can like your body can't help but feel it and obviously your pre-game is completely different so it's out of whack to anything you ever do every other week you can't just go out on the ground for a walk around because there's singers and dancers and all this entertainment happening so you had different times and you just had to adapt to it and no other way but to absorb what was going on and yeah nothing beats the feeling of when you're coming up the race and they crowd identifies that you're on your way out for battle and it was just piercing like you'd be one to two meters away from your teammates screaming and you could hardly hear them at all and that's where it comes down to the amount of times you train together, the amount of times you do certain drills, the amount of times you do certain situations because you have trust in the guy that you, that's playing near you to do the right thing, run certain patterns, do that sort of stuff. So, Because on days like that, you literally cannot hear each other at times. So it was a um, spine tingling a lot, but that's literally how it was and it was just piercing to your ears. It was an amazing feeling. Halftime break here on Amato's fifth quarter podcast. And I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone who has tuned into the show. The support is very much appreciated 
and I hope this episode is finding you well. If you're enjoying the show, it would be a massive help if you could consider subscribing and leaving a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps feed the podcast algorithm and boost the show's visibility, which will therefore allow for other Australian sports tragics to see and listen to the show. Five stars, of course, would be fantastic, but I'll leave that up to you. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. So there's been a lot spoken about Hawthorne's strategy with the rush behinds. The deliberate rush behind rule came in directly after this game. But back then, it was obviously legal. The scoreboard tells us that Geelong scored 23 behinds. And while they did miss a lot of gettable shots at goal, you guys rushed through plenty. Did you plan for that method the whole year? No, no, not not to that point, no. We had a theory that if you're getting close to the goal line, why, why try and create something out of nothing when you can just rush it behind and start again? But that's how it started and <laughs> it just turned out that grand final day we ended up rushing a, a ton of them and I think Mark Williams kicked a point from 40 metres out, I think at one stage he, he drilled one through for Geelong. But yeah, look, it wasn't a tactic to go into the game and no matter what we do, let's rush it. It just went back to our philosophy, which was something throughout the whole year, which was if you've got that opportunity and there's nothing genuinely on, don't just bomb it up the line but where their numbers are. You can just rush it. We can reset and then we can do our kicking plays from there. So that's sort of where that came about. Yeah, interesting. A couple of highlight moments and game-defining plays throughout that game. Cameron Mooney took that mark just out of the goal square and had a shot after the halftime siren, which was... A big moment because had he kicked that goal, Geelong would have led at half-time. You and a number of other Hawthorne players I've seen were standing off to the side and you seemed to be getting in his ear calling out. Do you remember what you said or what the others said? Brown to Blake, little give. Johnson fends off, gets some time and space, goes for goal and gets his mark moving. Strength, great kick and Stephen Johnson never kicks him from around that distance. But that's just bridge strength by Cam Mooney. And we can't run off the line now here, Mooney. Set shots this year haven't been great for him. 35-29, he's had a great first half, though. Must run in a straight line and kick the goal. And he misses. How's that? That's pressure. That is pressure. That's a side that's been pushed. They've had a lot of the play and haven't been able to put it on the scoreboard. Their skipper's gone down. I don't think I would have been saying too much. I'm a bit stupid sometimes, but I know that Cam Mooney <laughs> can handle himself. And the I big actually, hairy cat, yeah. Oh, he's a great fella too. I actually admired him, but I wasn't lipping off too much and I couldn't hear what the other boys were saying, but knowing what a couple of them are like, they would have been getting into it. But I remember a while after it, Cam actually come out and said like before that kick he was thinking he saw me and he saw the others and he was just going to come straight to us after he kicked it so his mind went from just getting it done to what he was going to do after so that's sort of why he missed but he yeah, scored oh, the goal before he'd, before he'd kicked the ball yeah yeah in a sense yeah look I was grateful because yeah, he probably would have knocked me out of something he's a big boy but in a sense I think I was just standing there and probably yipping and yahooing a little bit just trying to put him off but I wouldn't have been verbally hooking into him because I'm smarter than that so what was the energy like at halftime? Do you remember what Clarko said? Was everyone up and about? Was it calm? We went in absolutely knackered because it was bloody hot. We'd worked our asses off. We knew Crady was in a bit of strife, but we didn't realise that we were already two down on the bench. But yeah, I just remember sitting in the room, just 
scanning our composure and looking around the room and I just remember a few of us looking at each other going, right, let's let's fucking do this. Like we can do this. If we're tired, they're gonna they're more tired. We just started to believe. I think they might have had Jack Russell, our fitness guy, come in and he was saying, Yeah, we've like we've got them, they're jumping in the back of a bloody truck that the cool cooler truck, a fridge truck sort of thing and word got round so the boys just yeah I don't know we just had this belief at half time that yep look we're stuffed but we're, we can do this and we went from sort of being gassed to we had that bit of energy that right our boys let's, let's get the job done so yeah it was an interesting half time break that's for sure well to my eye they looked nervous at half time they knew Dewey was firing up yeah that's yeah. what I was going to say mid, <laughs> mid, midway through the third quarter you sort of the way I sort of think of it is you had had your foot on the throat of Geelong. You could see they were panicking and the, the pressure was on them. And then Stuart Jew has that incredible five, ten minute period, whatever it is, where he tears the game apart. Was, was there a moment during perhaps the third quarter or maybe the last quarter when you realised you actually were going to win the game? To the run of Crawford. 305 games. He pulls it back towards the middle. Hard to move Stuart Jew in that situation. Jew inside the fall of 50. quarter you kick one of the most I'll say underratedly famous grand final goals so there's about eight minutes left you're already sort of 20 points up you take a good mark on the wing and then Tom Hardley gives away a 50 meter penalty now before we get into the goal you had Shane Crawford come up to you to offer some opinions what did he say to you at that time 
<laughs> yeah, I was pretty knackered. I milked it a little bit. He hardly... He yeah, I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you, did you add any mayonnaise to that? I ran a fair way, did a big loop-de-loop around and, and let up and got the ball and then just a little bit of mayo on it just and it worked. <laughs> but then I was just cooked and I started cramping in my groin and a doctor and then Croft swaddled over to me and he's just put the arm around and, and Croft was a great mentor to me my whole career but obviously I idolised the guy growing up and then just loved the bloke in general but yeah, he puts his arm around me. At this stage I'd kicked two goals nine for the year so I wasn't overly confident. <laughs> two goals nine? I think I was up to two goals nine at, at that point wow. so confidence level wasn't overly high let's put it that way. Then Croft comes over who's, who's waited 17 years to play in the grand final and says, you kick this, we win the grand final, mate. Talk about pressure. Yeah, one of two ways. Could have looked at it, went shit, and just started shaking. Part of me did get nervous, but it actually just snapped me out of it. Went, right, he's right. I know I'm a decent left footer. I've just got to kick this well. And then we're right. So, in a sense, when you look back, the game was probably done, but when Bruce McAvaney sort of called it, and when you watch that, it was like this will completely feel it sort of thing. And it's a moment I'll never forget because, yeah, Croft was a huge part of career but one of his favourite moments as well but yeah to say that one he meant what he said so yeah I was just I was fortunate and I was really happy that it went through obviously so then we're able to celebrate. So you obviously knew within yourself that this was it if you kick the goal you're going to win the premiership. They'll be happy now just to be able to play a bit of keepings off. Well there's no guarantees in AFL footy. How much has changed for the two captains in a half an hour or an hour footy? I mean, Harley, just before half-time, and Mitchell, compare where they'll be right now. This is this season. Latson's kicked two goals so far this year. He's played every game. This would completely seal it. One now. That's it there. It's looking good. It's their day. Absolutely. It was like, yep, well, I've got to kick it. And if I do, we're home. You asked me sort of about the crowd and the noise and that before, but the moment that I knew it was going through and I had my arms in the air, that's all I was going to do. But then the crowd roar and the, the energy and the, the vibration that you feel just took over and yeah, an amazing sort of trance for a bit. So I chucked in a little bit of a fist pump and, and that from that. But it was an amazing moment. And, yeah, look, just grateful to be a part of the an AFL team, but then to be a part of the Premiership team is just amazing. Very fortunate and quite grateful for those opportunities. So can you paint a picture for our listeners as to what the feeling is like when the siren goes and you've won a Premiership? So the last little bit of play and what's been a memorable grand final has lived up to its height. Franklin got it from Jude, dropped it to Crawford, a little soccer off the ground, Rioli and Enright, Taylor, Buddy runs him down, Hawthorne, the champions, the long wait for Crawford over, what a team on and off the field they've turned out to be. Number four, Rick Latson. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. 
I have much pleasure in inviting the captain of Hawthorne's 1961 inaugural Premiership team, Graham Arthur, to present the Premiership Cup of 2008 to Sam Mitchell and Alistair Clarkson. Oh, look at the time. I remember exactly where I was and who I was with and when that siren went and play was up in the forward line and there was myself and Campbell Brown just sort of near the middle of the MCG and I was sort of working towards a zone spot and then the siren went and I just turned and the emotion you feel, you, you want to yell, you want to scream, you want to cry, you want to laugh, like it's just this an amazing feeling and I just remember Brown, he just lifted me up into the air and sort of started tearing up and he's a tough man Brownie but just the emotions it brings out so the feeling when you hear the siren then the crowd and then you see it's your best mates with their eyes just wide open it's just happiness and we've done it it's really hard to put it into one word three words like what you feel because there's so much going through your body and your mind at the time but again you know just so grateful that I was given an opportunity by the footy club but also just you know on the day and and to be there with 21 of my best mates at the time and unfortunately there's always those ones that miss out which you know you mentioned and some guys go their whole career and don't get a sniff and probably looking back to that 08 win a couple of guys that retired the year before but Richie Vandenberg was the catalyst to why we won in 08. Yeah it was a shame he missed out. Absolutely yeah and Ben Dixon and, and those guys that were here was pretty similar but Richie really drove our standards and you know led us young blokes and guys to believe in where we could get to with hard work and and mateship so but yeah the feeling's just phenomenal and then in those moments I guess after getting to see your other teammates that have come onto the ground staff members your coaches and then you know you do your presentation and then you get to do your sort of lap of honour and you know you're seeing people in the crowd that went to school with or mates and family and different pieces. It's a pretty surreal feeling, that's for sure. Is it true that you were injured going into the grand final? Yeah. I got injured in the first final. So I did a shoulder. So I, I had stands and stuff throughout the, the week. So I think it was in the second quarter, I think I did it. I knew I was in strife and they couldn't find it on the scan where it was injured. But, like, I couldn't lift my arm up sort of above my head well. Or, like, if you threw a tennis ball and I went to grab it, I could try and catch it. Yeah, like, this massive pain and shock would go down my arm. But leading into the prelim final, yeah, I had these scans and tests and did all those sort of things. Couldn't see anything on there, which was great (laughs) at the time. Frustrating. But, yeah, look, I ended up having a fitness test before the grand final. Yeah, had an injection to, to hide a bit of the pain because it was pretty pretty resilient in that space. But when it was at its sharpest, it was bloody painful. So, yeah, look, I was glad, but they didn't find it until pre-season. I had some issues over the break and it just didn't get any better. So thankfully for me, there was a little cyst hiding where the tear was because if they had have found that tear, they probably wouldn't have picked me. So, yeah, obviously I would have loved to have been able to probably play a bit better but in that prelim and I just remember grand final day I had a fairly handy job to do on Paul Chapman who I have a, a massive amount of respect for and yeah I was able to keep him reasonably quiet which was handy but I was pretty quiet too but 
yeah, again, just so grateful that I was still able to work through, I guess, an injury and still have an opportunity to play a role on the day. Did you ever think I might not be able to play? Yeah. Very early in the week, you think far out, you know, like if I'm going to be able to get through it because I couldn't lift my arm up and then, you know, I just made a decision at that point. It's like, nah, I can pull your head in. <laughs> be positive, be resilient. You've got a role to play. It'll be okay. Strap it, painkiller, do whatever you got to do. So that's what I tried to do. And I think the moment that I made that sort of decision early in the week, there's no doubt that if I didn't have that mindset, that it would have been a different story, I reckon. I don't reckon I would have got through the fitness test and wouldn't have been able to do anything too much on ground final day. Before we get into the final stretch of this episode, we need to take one more break here on A5Q. Now, this podcast is partnered with Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style. Unfortunately, most chemist store products do not really achieve this efficiently. If you want high-quality results, you need high-quality products. Pete and Pedro established in 2013, offers premium hair and beard grooming products and tools that will actually get in there, moisturize, rehydrate, and clean your scalp, hair, and beard thoroughly without burning a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, combs, brushes, and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote or partner with a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for years now and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your grooming game to that next level without breaking the bank, do yourself a favor and check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, DMATO10, spelled D-A-M-A-T-O-1-0, you'll score yourself an extra 10% off on what is already a great deal. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. But for right now, let's get back to the show. The year after 2009 is an interesting one. Difficult year for the club and with yourself with your knee injury. You only played the three games and Hawthorne endures the old grand final hangover. You finished ninth and missed the finals. And then the next year after, you did return to the finals, but you started the season one six star after seven games. What sort of happened in that first year and a half after the Premiership? Oh, look, there's no doubt we probably enjoyed ourselves after we won it in 08, but I had that shoulder, end up getting that operated on. Post that, I started running, but because I was favouring one side, it stirred up an old knee injury, so then I had that knee done, and then I was recovering from that, and look, yeah, things went going great, and I just remember sort of getting pressured a little bit to come back a bit early and then I hurt my other knee. So I'd sort of had <laughs> three surgeries in the space of not long. So that's sort of why I only ended up playing three games that year. We had a fair few guys that had some significant injuries that they needed surgery on and things. So we were just a bit slow to get going, but been well documented. And I think, you know, Audrey agreed and, and others that, you know, we probably got carried away with it a little bit and didn't reset as much as you probably should. But yeah, young group that probably didn't understand it at the time. But yeah, then in 2010 and 11, the boys started to you know, sort of reshape it and, and play off in the finals. And 
set themselves up for 12. They obviously lost to Sydney, but 13, 14, 15, they, they got the job done. And you know, a lot of those guys learn a lot from that 08, 09 experience that they didn't let happen through that period. So hats off to them for getting the job done in that space. And 2011 was your final season. So the Hawks were back to their very best that year. They finished third, but they actually won more games in the home and away season than the grand final years of 12, 13, 14, and 15. You started the first part of the season in the squad, but only played 10 games all up. And unfortunately, you didn't play in the finals. After the highs of 2007, 2008, and then injuries and form hindering the later years of your career, how do you sort of sum up those last couple of seasons? Yeah, look, they were challenging. There's no doubt about that. On the top of those injuries, sort of in 09, lost my dad suddenly. In November 2009, that rocked me. And, you know, looking back at it, I, there's probably a few things I would have changed a little bit about, you know, how I went about things. But, yeah, unfortunately, like, there was a couple of form-related sort of omissions. But when I was back at Box Hill, you know, I was banging down the door every week. Like, I'd just I'd give it everything I had. And when I went back to the Box Hill boys, and I just couldn't get back into that side for that final streak in 2011. But, yeah, I, I probably just struggled a fair bit just with the passing of dad and probably unbeknownst at the time but I just didn't put myself first I was too concerned about making sure mum and my sisters were going to be okay and instead of probably getting some help or talking about it more often at the time I just followed things up and there's no doubt that affected I guess yeah the outcome of my form and in the end that ultimately brought to the end of I guess my career at Hawthorne because there was a couple of ripping young kids coming through and in Maddie Suckling and Brendan Whitecross at the time. So that was up and coming sort of half backs that were putting some games together too. So yeah, that's sort of around that time it was just challenging mate to to absorb and play consistent and execute form wise. Just a lot of challenges in the background. You mentioned your father Barry who you lost in late two thousand nine. If you're comfortable to speak about it, yep. you know, I haven't gone through it myself, but I would gather that the loss of a parent would profoundly change who you are. Did that give you some perspective on life and football and, and things that really matter? Yeah, look, it's not that you don't think about those things, but because it then happens to you, there's a little bit more to life than just footy. But you can see, like, throughout my journey, like, you understand how much it means to other people what you do, but you're just normal. That's the thing, just because you play AFL, I think people expect you to be superhuman. Yeah, the same things happen to AFL footballs that happen to everyday people. But yeah, look, it was it was just a big shock. I spoke to Dad every day, well, best of mates. I was talking to him on that day. I was having a knee scan, actually, and just those sort of things for the next couple of years. It was just hard to work past it because little things like each game, he'd be the last person I spoke to before a game, in the rooms, before I turned my phone off. Just little things that were part of routine, and then it wasn't there. So yeah, some people would think, oh, well, Surely you just moved past it, but you know, they're pretty significant. Everyone deals with things differently, and like I said just before, I think now looking back at it, there is a couple of things that I would have changed, and, but I didn't, and it is what it is. But again, just grateful I did have some great support around me from the footy club point of view, and some great mates that were always in my corner. So, yeah, it was just a, in a sense a little bit disappointing to finish the way I did, but I still. For what I had in me at the time, I gave it everything I had at that time. Do you think that impacted the later parts of your career? Because 
2011, as we mentioned, was your last season. Do you think the passing of your father had a massive impact on you perhaps not playing for longer than what you could have played? Oh, look, it's probably, I don't, I think if it, if it hadn't have happened, I would have been playing for another couple of years. I, I don't, that's not the sole reason, I think. As I said, I, I just think I probably would have went about things just a little bit differently. But, you know, I wasn't off the rails or doing anything stupid, but I just wasn't in a great headspace at times. Again, you know, you bottle things up and it, and it affects the way you function and play and who you are during the week and days and stuff. And, yeah, there's a lot going on, but my body was pretty banged up probably at a time where I think I did have I had a contract offer to go to GWS. I think it was. They were just coming in. And I said yes to it at the start, and then something fell through the next day, and I, I just said, no, nah, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> Don't worry about it. But again, it was just hard work at the time, just trying to still navigate my way through, still trying to support mum and sisters and, again, making sure everyone else is all right, whereas I probably just needed to prioritise myself to be in a better place to, to continue to play footy. But whether I did or if I had went on, it wouldn't have been for much longer because yeah, the, the knee and hip were playing up pretty significantly. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you if when... Your time at Hawthorne came to an end. If there was any chance of you picking up a spot in another club, did you, or have you ever thought what could have been if I went to to GWS? Have you ever, if you had your time oh, again, would you have made a different decision, or you you were content that that was it? Ah, uh, look, I think again, yeah, like I probably hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But yeah, you do briefly think, you know, what if Dimmer Hardwick got me to Richmond for a couple of years? <laughs> you know, yeah, it was at Hawthorne, yeah. Yeah, if I went to GWS, I wonder how things would have been. But it's irrelevant because it didn't happen. So you, you briefly sort of think about it and you go, well, it is what it is. I made my decision. This is where I'm at. So it's a significant moments, but as I said, just briefly think about it. And I don't regret anything where I'm at now. So Yeah, no, fair enough. The following years at Hawthorne after you had left, the grand finals four years in a row, Runners-up yep. in 2012 and then the premiers in 13, 14 and 15. What was it like for yourself to see all that success directly in the four years after you had left? You were young enough where you could have still been a part of that. Were you at all envious of this success? Did you feel like you deserved to be a part of that? Or was it purely just happy for the club and your old teammate? So the Hawks are so close now. An 11th premiership. Buddy may get the last touch. Dawson deprives him. They've done it. The best team all year. Last year so difficult for them. Back on top of the mountain. I thought he was out of it anyway. But this great team, the best team of the modern era, of the last 50 years, produces its masterpiece. They've never been better than this. So Hawthorne have done it. The first team in the 18-team competition to go back to back to back. They're three Peters. They are remarkable. Yeah, just ecstatic, mate. I was there every grand final. I didn't miss one. I went down to games when I could. Yeah, I was like a little groupie sort of supporter, mate. I, I was just wrapped for him. And lot the guys I mentioned, like Matt Suckling, I just loved that young bloke. And to finally see him win one, you know, it's one of the first people I went to down in the room, just things like that. So would it have been awesome to be a part of it? Absolutely it would have been. 
I was not jealous, not angry, not, nothing like that, mate, because it's all on me, you know. I finished up and I went and did what I did and I was just wrapped for the footy club and, like I said, I didn't miss one I was there for when they lost it in 12 and I was at the next three when they won it. So, yeah, and that was a significant thing to still be a part of the footy club, to go and support them on those days because, yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. I was just wrapped for them. You mentioned Brendan Whitecross. I feel quite sorry for him because he's one of the most unluckiest footballers I've ever heard of. He was on the list the whole time and never played in a winning grand final. Yeah, one of the hardest workers too, Whitey, and really lovely sort of guy too. Would do anything for, for anyone in a sense. So, yeah, I agree, mate. It's sort of bloody bit rough that he didn't get near one. But, well, he got near one, but just, yeah, missed out. But, you know, again, I think, you know, if you had a chat to him, He'd deflect it and put it onto his teammates to say how wrapped he was for him because that's the guy he is. Yeah. So just as we're about to, to wrap up now, Rick, two last things I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Firstly, the elimination final against Adelaide in 2007, obviously known for Buddy Franklin announcing himself on the big stage, kicked seven goals, including the match winner. But you were responsible for hitting him out with that beautiful left foot pass. Do you ever get the credit for that? Some tight boys out there at the moment. There's enough time, you would think, for Crawford and Hawthorne to mount another realistic challenge. Ladson. Fans screaming. Oh, oh there it is. You caught it, Luke. There it is. Lance Franklin has marked 47 from goal. Franklin's kick six. This to put the Hawks in front with just a few seconds left in the elimination final. Lance Franklin. Time has gone by the look of it. The Hawks know they've got it. Nah, never. He he got the bank account for it. But nah, look, it was my job. But that was one of my traits, being able to hit targets left foot. So I'm wrapped. I get a little bit bit of a plug there with the kick. But yeah, look, what a day and... Throughout my career, that's one of my favourite, one of the favourite times is that that win against Adelaide as a young group. And because Adelaide were a good side back then, very good. Oh bloody us! Yep, they had some rippers rolling around. So Goodwin, McLeod, Rashudo, like just stars of the game and others too. But yeah, we were just young pups and with a couple of fossils in there. Yeah, it was a great win. And yeah, that kick to Bud was significant. It's a thing that I do remember, but I just loved how Bud just went back and slotted it to win it for us. Just after the 2008 Grand Final, so from 2008 to 2013, you did not win a game against Geelong after that premiership, known as the Kennet Curse. Was there was there actually a mental roadblock and a nerve when you played against them, or was that just outside forces and the media suggesting that? Former Hawks president, Jeff Kennett, made comments on the Hawks' superiority after the 2008 Grand Final. They don't have the psychological drive that we have. We've beaten Geelong when it matters. And sparked a Geelong winning streak that extended to 11 straight wins, known as the Kennett Curse. So Jeff Kennedy, famously or infamously, created the curse. Set the hearse for the curse. They've won. Hawthorne have won. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I just think... It was more outside and media hype and that. But just the results, they obviously made a pact that they were never going to lose to us again either. So, 
we didn't go into a game like anything that I was involved in. There wasn't a game that we played against them where we went in thinking, oh, we're going to lose this. We always thought that we could win. We just didn't execute as well as we would have liked. But, geez, there were some turlers. Like, there's been some close ones over the journey. Still good contest yeah, between still the two. Like, yeah, yeah. Except for this bloody Easter Monday. That was a shocker. But, yeah, no, nah, like, I, I can't recall at the time ever, ever thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to lose today. We always went out had a belief that you were going to win. Well, at least I did anyway, but I know the competitors that I was running out with are the same, so, yeah. And Rick, just as we are now about to close up, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? Lastly, who's the best coach you ever played under and why? Playing with, this one's always a tough one because there's so many bloody good ones. I'm going to go with... Luke Hodge, his ability to lead from his actions, but he was also like just a ruthless competitor. And when he was next to me in the back line, I just I just walked taller, and as did our team. But his ability to turn a game just so quickly, lead our boys, our group, to play tough sort of footy, and he did it from you know the very first game he played, so to the time he finished at Brisbane too, so just admired him but yeah so like he'd have to be I usually say Chance Bateman because I think Chance got the absolute best out of himself and he sustained a great career just through his work ethic and laid the foundations for some great Indigenous boys to follow in his footsteps at Hawthorne too but best player to ever play against there's been a few like a couple of special mentions with Paul Chapman Gary Ablett Bartel, those guys used to have to roll around on. But Andrew McLeod was the toughest and the best to play against because he was just so silky, fast, a bit fast for me at times, so to cut him off. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just always in awe when I had to line up against him. Thankfully, I only had to do it once or twice. Clarko, I mean, love Schwabby, but yeah, Clarko gave me belief in my ability from the first meeting I had with him. Like, oh, have you ever played down back? I was like, no, not really. He goes, well, I see you playing half back for me and using your skill. And, and then from that meeting, you sort of touched on before 05, 06, and 07, and 08. Like, I built confidence and my body held up, and I played some pretty pretty significant footy off half back. So, yeah, Clark, I would have to be my favourite and, and the best. Rick Ladson, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. I've really enjoyed the chat. And I wish you all the best in everything you're doing now with your coaching and also personally with your family. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much for, for taking your time to come on here tonight. No, no worries at all. It's, it's been great. And yeah, thanks for reaching out and having me on. Appreciate it. And that is a wrap for another episode. I trust you enjoyed this conversation and I thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review. And I'll catch you all on the next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast.